All right, if you want to go ahead and, and turn in your Bibles, we're going to take a look at First Kings today. First Kings, beginning in chapter 16, verse 29. You know, I think some of the uh, most familiar passages to us come from the Old Testament. But sometimes, maybe as we read the Old Testament, we don't quite know how to handle the passage or what to do with the passage. Are these passages where we're reading about the kings of Israel, where we're reading about the prophets, are these passages just interesting stories to read? Or do they have some significance for us today? How do we apply these ancient narratives to our own lives? Now, I, I think it, uh, many of the history books in the Old Testament, the history narratives, tend to get neglected because we focus so much on the New Testament. But I want us to explore at least a certain part of the life of Elijah today. Uh, so that's why we are in First Kings. And to give it just a little bit of preface, I'm going to start back. The, the part about Elijah starts in chapter 17. But I want to back it up and so that we've got just a little bit of context. So we're going to be in chapter 16, beginning at verse 29. Because we've got to learn about King Ahab before we learn about Elijah. Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Judah's king Asa. Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, more than all who were before him. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, was a trivial matter, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple, in the temple of Baal that he had, bu that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. During his reign, Heel the Bethleite built Jericho. At the cost of Abiram his firstborn, he laid its foundation, and at the cost of Segub his youngest, he set up its gates. According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken through Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, I stand before him, and there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Then a revelation from the Lord came to him, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide yourself at the wadi, the brook Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. You are to drink from the from the brook. I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he did what the Lord commanded. 
Elijah left and lived by the brook Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. The ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening, and he drank from the brook. After a while, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Get up, go to Zarephath that belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Look, I have commanded a woman, who is a widow, to provide for you there. So Elijah got up and went to Zarephath. When he arrived at the city gate, there was a widow gathering wood. Elijah called her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup and let me drink. As she went to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I don't have anything baked. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a bit of oil in a jug. Just now I was gathering a couple of sticks in order to go and prepare it for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said. Only make me a small loaf from it and bring it out to me. Afterwards you may make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The flour jar will not become empty, and the oil jug will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. She and her husband, she and her household ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty. The oil jug did not run dry. According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken through Elijah. After this, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. His illness became very severe until there was no breath that remained in him. And she said to Elijah, Man of God, what do we have in common? Have you come to remind me of my guilt and kill my son? But Elijah said to her, Give me your son. So he took him from her arms brought him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him out on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, My God, have you also brought tragedy upon the widow I am staying with by killing her son? Then he stretched out himself over the boy three times. He cried out to the Lord and said, My Lord God, please let this boy's life return to him. So the Lord listened to Elijah's voice. And the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Then Elijah took the boy, brought him down from the upper room into the house, and gave him to his mother. Elijah said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the Lord's word in your mouth is the truth. Let's pray. Father, Lord, our minds are so small when it comes to understanding you. I pray that you would give us grace to, to see your handiwork in these words, to see your movement as we apply these, this passage to our lives today. 
May we know you better, know who you are and how you act, and how you've called us to act as we explore this passage. Amen. What, it, as we read this passage, th- we've, we, this is a, a um, I guess I would call it a very depraved time in the history of Israel, in the history of the Israelite kings. And this is the context for the ministry of Elijah. Uh, this, this story that we're looking at with Elijah occurs within a much bigger Old Testament story. Now, this, this section is called the Kingdom Narratives. And just given some of the background, of course, after David came Solomon. And yet because of the sin of Solomon, the Lord said that the next generation after Solomon, the kingdom was going to be split, was going to be not just split, but torn, ripped in two. And that's exactly what happened. You had the original 12 tribes that made up the kingdom. And then after Solomon, you had 10 tribes and two tribes. The kingdom of Judah, two tribes, were ruled by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And Judah occupied a certain geographical territory within the promised land. Judah occupied the territory where Jerusalem was and the temple of God. That's where they were located. The remaining ten tribes were led, as we've read here, by a man called Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Now, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he had a problem. You see, the people under his rule, from the ten tribes, they had to go to Jerusalem, into the kingdom of Judah, to worship, because that's where the temple of God was. Now, Jeroboam was a shrewd ruler. And he knew that over time, the people's loyalty would probably shift away from him because they had to travel to Jerusalem each year. They, the loyalty to him would weaken and they would drift away and they would probably eventually want to reunite with the other kingdom. And of course, what that would mean to Jeroboam would be that his house, he and his house, would lose their power, would lose their inheritance, would lose any influence that they had. And so, in order to keep this from happening, he came up with what might be considered a clever, but certainly a theologically inappropriate solution to his problem. What did he do? Well, he set up golden calves in the cities of Bethel and Dan. And says, you don't have to travel to Jerusalem anymore. You can just go to either Bethel or Dan and worship the gods that brought you out of Egypt, close to home. And if you think about this, this is probably a deliberate play on the sin of Israel at Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? Remember, they set up a golden calf to worship. And this is exactly what Jeroboam does here. I mean, I don't think you could get any more blasphemous against God than what Jeroboam did here. And as we read, uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
he becomes the benchmark of evil for the kings of Israel. As as we've read, you as you if you read through the book of Kings, there's a there's a refrain or a theme that keeps repeating itself. So and so was king and he ruled many years, but he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. For example, Kings sixteen nineteen, referring to King Zimri, it says he died because of the sin he committed by doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and by following the example of Jeroboam and the sin that he caused Israel to commit. So Jeroboam is the benchmark of Israelite depravity, immorality, corruption, and wickedness. He's the man that introduced false worship to the people of Israel. He's the man that um, basically was every other king was compared to um, until you get to our story and King Ahab. Ahab is described in, in an even more sinister way. And we read it here. It said that uh, Ahab did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. And the writer's making a point about Ahab. The height of sinful and of sinful ambition for previous kings was nothing compared to the sin of Ahab. It even says for Ahab, it was only a little thing to do the same as Jeroboam. That was just a little thing compared to everything else. He takes it, he took it to a whole new level. He didn't just let the false worship continue. He married a foreign princess and he brings the worship of Baal into the Holy Land, brings the worship of Baal into the land that was supposed to be consecrated to the Lord God of Israel. And it is, it is at this time that Elijah appears on the scene. And it's like God is saying, enough is enough. And God declares war on Baal. He declares war on the Israelites who have chosen to worship Baal. It's at this point that God sends Elijah. Sends him to engage Baal, to engage the prophets of Baal, and to engage the people of Israel who are worshiping Baal. And it's a battle that, as you read through scriptures, lasts way beyond the lifetime of Elijah. But it does come to a conclusion with Elisha, the son of Saphat, and Jehu the son of Nimshi. And so we've read that Elijah bursts onto the scene. The story is, as we read through it, simple and straightforward. The Tishbite Elijah confronts Ahab and declares that there's not going to be any rain. Now this is a farming community, an agrarian society. What's key for a farming community or agrarian society? rain. You've got to have rain to grow the crops. So to say that there's not going to be any rain, that is a death sentence. If it doesn't grain, the crops don't grow. There isn't any food. There isn't any water. You die. So the Lord was basically pronouncing a death sentence, so to speak, on the people because of their sin. 
But the Lord does provide for Elijah. The drought continues. The water table lowers. And even though the Lord has told Elijah, go to the brook, Cherith, eventually that brook dries up. You know, there's a, um, there's a small creek behind my parents' house. And in the summertime, it, it almost completely dries up. Now in the wintertime, it's got lots of water. Uh, in, the, in the springtime, it's got lots of water. But it dries up in the summertime. The, the same thing happened here. The brook dried up. And the Lord sends Elijah to Zarephath. Zarephath near Sidon. And the geography here is important. And we'll get back to that later. Elijah has been sent out of the promised land for his own protection to survive. He comes across a widow by God's providence and through God's hand she's able to provide for both Elijah and herself and her son. And later on we read that the woman's son becomes severely ill and dies. And Elijah does what I would only describe as something of a weird and bizarre action. Raises the child from the dead. So this story has lots of human drama. You could probably make a movie out of it, but they'd get a lot of stuff wrong. Uh, So the question for us is, what use is this story to me? What am I supposed to learn from this story? How's it going to be remotely useful to me as I go to work tomorrow or as I go to school tomorrow? Well, there are four basic lessons I think we can draw from this passage that are relevant for us today. And I'll just hit the first four. First, this passage teaches us about the power of God in His Word. Second, it teaches us about the power of God in His sovereignty. Third, we're going to look at the power of God in His mercy. And then fourth, I want to touch on the power of God in the midst of death. And I think all of these points are relevant for us today. But what does this passage teach us about the power of God in His Word? Well, let's start by looking at Elijah. And I think one of the most interesting things that we learn about Elijah in this passage is something that we do not know about him. I know that sounds strange, but one of the most important things that we learn is that we don't know something about him, if that makes sense. Sometimes it's not what is in the text that is important, but it's what is left out of the text that you have to take notice of. Elijah is introduced in a way here that is interesting and peculiar for a prominent figure in the Old Testament. And that is that we are not told his genealogy. You know, the Bible is full of genealogy genealogy connections. We, We read Solomon, son of David, Jeroboam, son of Nabat, Jehu, son of Nimshi, Elisha, son of Saphat, with all these people, we know who the Father is. 
And the reason for this is that in the ancient world, and even in parts of the world today, a person's authority, a person's status, is determined by the identity of their ancestors. Um, if you've ever read Russian novels, did you ever read Russian novels? Um, for example, you know, you've all heard of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. There was a book called One Day in the Life of Ivan Dasanovich. Do you know this book? Yep. You know this? Well, one thing that's different about Russian novels than American is they spend a lot of time telling you who the character is. To in this, in this novel, for example, uh, they talk about they take the father's name and typically uh, use it maybe as a middle name so that you know the family connections, you know who the father is. Uh, it's not the same as the American surname. But to give you an example, uh, Mary's not in here. But the name McLaren is son of Lauren. That's the, the derivation of the name. McLeod, son of Leod, is the, is the derivation of the name. The reason behind these names is it locates the person. It, it tells you who the father was, where they lived, the importance of your status or lack of status in society. And we have that with some of the names today. I mean, think about people with a surname of Bush or Kennedy carries a certain level of prestige because of their connection to their families. And in the Bible, we're told who people's fathers are because that helps invest the person with authority. But when we read about Elijah, it's like he comes out of nowhere. He has no genealogy that we're told about. We're not told who his father is. Why is that? Well, it's because for the purpose of this, his heritage, his genealogy, is not important. It's actually irrelevant because Elijah's authority depends on the person in whose name he speaks, not his family's heritage, but because he speaks for the Lord. That's where his authority comes from. Now imagine that you're a senior manager at work, and you go into work tomorrow, and when you walk in, your secretary says to you, you're fired. Now, we might all laugh at that. How could a secretary tell a senior manager you're fired? You know, you might you might fire back at her and say, you can't do that. You're just a secretary. I'm the senior manager here. Let me show you the company's organizational chart. I'm up here. You're down here. Then the secretary would say, yes, that's right. But I have a letter from the president. Or I have a letter from the board of directors here in my hand that says you are fired and security must escort you out the building. So it doesn't matter in this case that it's the secretary who's delivering the message. What matters is the message. Her authority to say you're fired comes from the president of the company. So she's speaking with the authority of the president. And in a sense, that's what Elijah is doing here. By not telling us who his father is, the writer here is making the point 
that Elijah's authority does not depend upon his family. Elijah is speaking to Ahab, Ahab the king who has royal lineage. It may be have been usurped, but it's still royal lineage nonetheless. But this doesn't matter because Elijah speaks in the name of God. So why is that important to us? Uh, a couple of reasons that I just want to bring out. Why does a pastor, a church elder, have authority? Well, it's not because he's intrinsically better than any other person in the church or in the congregation. He has authority only and as far and only as far as he speaks the word of the Lord and as long as he speaks in the name of God. And second, as, as, a, as a word of encouragement, what about the authority of the church? What authority does the church have? In terms of the world, we don't have much of a status. As a matter of fact, we're not respected at all in terms of the world. We're not respected like organizations such as Doctors Without Borders. That's a respectable organization. The Sierra Club, Planned Parenthood. Those are organizations that are respected. Those are, that came off of the top 100 list of respected organizations. I didn't see any churches there. You know, how many people live here in Raleigh? It's about about half a million. But how many of those half a million people do we think are probably attending a church this morning? North Carolina has almost 10 million. Out of that, how many are gathered in worship this morning? But so how how does the church have power? How does the church have authority? Well, the good news is that the church does not have power and authority as the world sees it. The world is interested in your status. The world is interested in the power you can yield, you can yield, wield within the culture. The church has power because the church speaks in the name of God. The church has power because the church proclaims the word of God. And the word is sufficient. The word is our sufficient source of power because the one who speaks the word, God himself, is the sufficient source of power. He's our source of power. Not the things that the world looks toward, but God himself. So, the point there is that just as Elijah spoke with the power of the Lord, even though he didn't have any respect in his culture, we also speak, proclaim with the power of the Lord, even though we may not have any respect in our, our culture as well. We know where our power comes from. The power of God in his sovereignty. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing what the Lord does here when, when he engages Baal and the worshipers of Baal in, in combat. First of all, he chooses rain to engage with. And the reason 
for that is you've got to understand who Baal is or who Baal was. Baal was viewed as the storm god, the god responsible for bringing rain and thus fertility to the land. In a agrarian life, in the farming community, you would want to make sure that you had good crops each year. And to have good crops, you have to have rain. So you would pray to Baal, who was the god responsible for bringing rain. Again and again, with both Elijah and Elisha, the Lord engaged Baal on his own territory to demonstrate that Baal didn't actually exist. So what the Lord is saying here when he stops the rain is he's saying to, to the people of Israel, okay, you've chosen to trust Baal for rain instead of me. Go ahead and trust him. Let's see how that works out for you. Because I am the Lord, I am sovereign, I'm going to seal up the heavens and stop the rain in order to demonstrate to you who is really in control, who the God of rain really is. So the Lord was demonstrating his power and his sovereignty by controlling the weather. But he also demonstrates, as we read in the story, his power geographically. There was a mindset during this time that the gods of the land had certain geographical areas in which they were powerful. You know, it's, it's interesting as we read through the story, when the brook dries up, the Lord didn't say to Elijah, go back to Jerusalem where it's safe. That's where the temple is. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. And that's where I'm most powerful. It's home territory. It's home court. I can keep you safe there. That's not what the Lord said. The Lord sends Elijah out of the promised land to Zarephath near Sidon. Now, Zarephath, get this, was the center of Baal worship. So God sends Elijah to the home court of Baal. You know, this was pagan territory where Baal was supposed to be the most powerful, super strong. If Baal had control anywhere, it would be at Zarephath. Maybe Baal didn't control the rain in the promised land, but surely he was able to control the rain in his own territory. So here, the Lord is demonstrating his sovereignty, not just over the elements of rain, but over the land as well saying that the Lord God of Israel is sovereign not just over Israel not just over the promised land but the Lord God of Israel is sovereign everywhere and in the midst of a dark Baal dominated land the Lord provides and preserves his prophet the Lord is sovereign here in Raleigh as well. The Lord is sovereign in Panama. The Lord is sovereign in Korea. The Lord is sovereign in China. The Lord is sovereign in Peru. The Lord is sovereign in France as well. The culture's power is limited. The culture's power is limited. As we look around and see the chaos that culture brings however wicked 
it seems, however much it seems that wickedness is triumphant this day, we must stand and know that the Lord God is still sovereign. We don't know why he's tarrying. That we can't answer. But we do know that he is sovereign. And as he was sovereign in Zarephath, where Baal was meant to be strong, he is sovereign here as well. The Lord God is sovereign. Third point, as we see the power of God in his mercy. The overarching story of this is one of judgment. Ferocious judgment comes against the nation of Israel. But even as we have this story of God's judgment, we also see kind of a smaller story. And that is that God still cares for individuals. God still cares for individuals. God's judgment does not require that he deny mercy from his people. We have Elijah. God takes care of him at the brook, being fed by the ravens. He extends mercy to Elijah, protected and cared for even in the midst of judgment. Maybe you remember some scenes from The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. Do you remember the scene where Gandalf is trapped at the top of Saruman's tower and there looks to be no escape? And then he gets rescued by an eagle. Now we might think for a movie that that's slightly contrived. The eagle swoops in and saves the day. But, you know, that is kind of what happened here. The whole land is dried up. And God tells Elijah to go to the brook and Elijah gets fed by ravens. The Lord loves his servant and does not allow him to starve. And the story gets even better. When Elijah goes to Zarephath, the, the, it's fascinating that the, God's choice of the objects of his mercy are a widow and some scriptures would say a fatherless child, some an orphan. But it's a widow and a fatherless child. You know, I, other than, than, than Greg, I don't know how many of you spend a lot of time reading systematic theology. Uh, but one of the things with, with studying systematic theology is you read about God's attributes. And sometimes the terms can be a little bit more on the abstract side. God is infinite. God is omnipotent. Omnipotent as in all-powerful. God is omniscient, all-knowing. But when the Bible talks in these terms, the Bible is very concrete and very down-to-earth. Deuteronomy, one of the greatest passages that talks about God's attributes. Deuteronomy 10, 17, and 18 says this, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God. What, what, wait, what, what does that mean? The great, the mighty, and awesome God. Well, the writer, Moses, goes on to explain to us, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and for the widow, loving the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. 
So if someone were to come to you and ask you what God is like, this is a wonderful passage. This would be a great example to read to them. God looks after and cares for the widow and the fatherless. God cares for the foreigner, someone who is not in their homeland. And what is their story about? It's about a widow. It's about a fatherless boy. And it's about someone who has been sent out from his homeland and is now living in a foreign land for his own protection. And we see the beautiful character of God, of God's mercy, revealed here. Elijah comes to Zarephath and he meets the widow, immediately extending God's mercy. The whole nation of Israel has failed to reflect God's mercy. But one man reflects the character of God. Even as judgment comes, God remains true to his character and and extends mercy. So for us, even as a society comes under God's judgment, even as the church comes under God's judgment, we must not forget who God is and that he continues to care. He continues to have mercy. He continues to show mercy. And we must not forget that we, as the church, we must not forget who we are in the midst of judgment. We must remember that we are to continue to reflect the character of God. Continue to reflect the mercy of God to the world even when we are not respected by the world, even in the midst of judgment. This is what Elijah was doing. It's what God was doing through Elijah. You know, think about it. When this widow met Elijah, she was preparing the last meal for her and her son, and they were going to eat it and die. But when she meets him, this becomes the greatest day of her life. Not only are she and her son saved from destruction, but God showed himself forth as the merciful God through Elijah. And this brings us to our fourth point. The power of God in the midst of death. Now my parents called me just a couple of weeks ago to inform me that someone I had grown up or someone I had known from childhood had died on Halloween night uh, in a car accident. She has an adult daughter and a son who's a junior in high school now. But when my parents told me that, I didn't think, oh, what would Elijah do in this context, in this circumstance? Uh, No, that's not a pattern for us to follow. What Elijah did was almost, but not quite, a one-off. Do you know what a one-off means? It means that it is a one-time occurrence. It happens only once. But it's almost, but not quite. But what we've got to ask ourselves, what is the significance of this part of the story? Where God, through Elijah, returns life to the boy. You know, you've got to understand something. Dead bodies in the Old Testament are bad news. Death 
is an intrusion into the created realm. Numbers 19 says this, The person who touches any human corpse will be unclean for seven days. This is a, effectively means that if you touch a dead body, you are excluded from the people of God for a whole seven days. And if you did it by accident, it doesn't make any difference. If you sat on a bed where a dead body was, you're also made unclean. It doesn't matter if you knew it or not. So, in other words, what Elijah does in this passage is the exact exact opposite of what we would expect him to do. What did he do? He throws himself onto the body of this dead child. God's prophet touches a dead body. And we would think he should not have done that. The power, the repugnant power of death is so powerful that it makes a living person unclean. But did it make Elijah unclean? No, that's not what happened. As Elijah called upon the Lord, the child was made clean. Death released its grip and life returned to the child. As I said, this action by Elijah seems very, very strange to us, but there is a there's something very theologically specific that happened. It's a pointer, a shadow of things to come. It's a pointer to something in the New Testament. In in Mark chapter five, Mark chapter five could be called the chapter of uncleanliness because it starts off with a man so full of unclean demons that their name is Legion. And the second half of the chapter deals with uncleanliness too. And if you want to turn there, it's Mark chapter 5, around verse 21. Uh, but the story is Jairus, who was one of the synagogue leaders. His daughter was dying, and so he comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to come and heal her. And Jesus is making his way to Jairus' house, and gets caught up in a crowd. The crowd is pushing and pressing in against him. It, and, and at some point, a woman who has had a flow of blood for 12 years reaches out and touches Jesus. Now, a little later in the passage, we're told that the little girl was 12 years old. This is significant. But why, we ask ourselves. Now, if you're over 40 or 45, 12 years kind of goes like a snap of the fingers, doesn't it? But if you've had a toothache for 12 years, or if you're suffering with some kind of ongoing pain, or some incurable disease for 12 years, Twelve years is going to seem like a lifetime, isn't it? And twelve years was a lifetime for this little girl. So I think that Mark is reminding us that twelve years is a long time. It was the whole of this girl's little life. And this woman, one day, everything is fine. And the next, she starts having a flow of blood that doesn't stop. And what does this mean? 
Well, it means that she is unclean and that she is excluded from the people of God. She would have counted every single day of those 12 long years. And at some point, this woman reaches out and touches Jesus. And we have what seems to be a strange comment in verse 30 of Mark 5. It says, At once Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around to the crowd and said, Who touched my robes? Everyone was reaching out and touching Jesus. They wanted to touch the Master. But what was so special about this woman? You see, all the clean people were touching him, and they made no difference. But an unclean person had touched him. And again, we're told in the Old Testament that if you touch a woman during her monthly time of impurity, that you become unclean. So, what should have happened to Jesus, what should have made him unclean, did not happen. Instead, power flows out of him and makes the woman clean. Her flow of blood stops immediately. She's healed. She's made clean. But the story doesn't stop there. There's a temporary tragedy that we read about next. The delay involved in ministering to this woman means that Jairus' daughter is dead by the time Jesus arrives at the house. But when Jesus goes into the room where the child's body was laying, what does he do? Very similar to Elijah, he touches the dead, unclean body. He touched her and she was made clean. So this was similar to what happened to Elijah or what Elijah did, but not quite. There's a significant, significant difference and I want to point out what that is. Back in Kings, we read that Elijah cried out to the Lord and said, please let this boy's life return. Jesus simply says, little girl, I say to you, rise up. Do you see the difference? Elijah had to call upon God and God gave Elijah the power to raise the little boy. Jesus had no need to call upon God because he is God. Jesus was the fulfillment or is the fulfillment of this dynamic that we see played out in the Old Testament with Elijah and the little boy. Jesus here is sovereign in the deepest, darkest of enemy territories. Forget about power over rain. Forget about power over territory, over Zarephath. Jesus is sovereign in the midst of death. And he is sovereign in the midst of death as he demonstrates with his own death on the cross and his resurrection, which we hold dearly to. And that is the good news. You know, the tragedy of what's gone on in France cuts us all to the heart and yet we have to stand there and say God is sovereign God is sovereign even in the midst of death and we cling dearly to that 
and we think about other things too I mean the woman that reached out and touched Jesus what's the one thing that she didn't fear she did not being unclean she did not fear going to Jesus and I think that's one thing that I mean I personally know that I've struggled with this and maybe you have too felt that you were had done something wrong during the week and were embarrassed to approach God with it or frustrated and go I can't even ask forgiveness this week but you know it doesn't matter what you or I have done this week or last week or the week before it doesn't matter how dirty we feel or embarrassed we feel when we come to the church you know it's the devil's trick to say you're too dirty to reach out and touch Christ Jesus is not made dirty by our sin he cleans and purifies our sin he takes away our sin even as Christians and he makes us clean again restores us to righteousness you know, the, I think the greatest lesson is that this passage, as well as all of the Old Testament, points us to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who we know is sovereign. Sovereign over the rain. Sovereign over the land. And sovereign even over death itself. Sovereign over our lives as we reach out to Him in faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the example of Elijah who faithfully spoke Your Word. We thank You that You reign mercifully and we thank you for how we can see how this passage points us to Christ and his power, your power over death. We thank you for the grace that you have extended to us through Jesus Christ. Father, give us confidence that clutching, clinging to Christ we can face anything. We can face persecution by culture. We can face being misunderstood, disrespected, even hated by culture. As long as we stand upon your word. And give us the confidence that when we face, when we look at the ultimate uncleanliness, death itself, That when we face that, we will pass through to the other side and dwell in communion with you. May we look forward to that day, Father. We give you thanks. Amen.